Reformed and Confessional exists to promote Reformed Confessionalism, to proclaim the sufficiency of Scripture, and to extol the supremacy of Christ over all things. I'm John Fry, and thank you so much for joining the Reformed Confessional podcast on a day when we'll talk about something very, very good. That is a bit of a pun, because today we're going to be discussing the good, specifically that word, and what it means in Romans 8, 28. So on a day where I have experienced a negative 32 degree wind chill and negative 7 degree weather, I'm really blessed to have this time and go ahead and just minister the word, hopefully encourage you and hopefully bring to light some clarity on Romans 8.28, which certainly is a passage of scripture that we are blessed by our sovereign Lord and Savior to have. What I'd like to do is read these verses here. And we'll go ahead and talk about what the word good does not refer to in Romans 8.28. Then we'll talk about what good does refer to in Romans 8.28. And then we're just going to take a look at a little bit of application. How does this play out in the lives of God's people? So first and foremost, what we'll do is read Romans 8, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And the verses read as follows, quote, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now that is packed full of some substantial theology. But today, for our purpose, we want to focus in on verse 28, and we will couple that with verse 29 to find meaning of the word good. Now, I would say that in my experience, Romans 8.28 is a refuge for the people of God who are hurting, who are perplexed, who are in a life situation that they quite frankly don't understand, things that are uncomfortable. Real life problems and real tangible hope comes from Romans 8.28. That is a promise For those who love the Lord and for those who are called according to His purpose, all things work together for good. Very briefly, I just want to point out that all glory goes to God for this verse because if it were not first for God loving us and for Him giving us a new heart, we would not love Him. And then secondly, be assured that the portion of this verse that says, for those who are called according to His purpose, that's an effectual call. That is salvation. So, Both the fact that we love God and that we have been called by God are because of God. So the promise that says all things work together for good, there is a bit of a coincidence there that it's for those who A, love God, and B, those who are called according to His purpose. If that's true about you, then the promise of Romans 8.28 is applicable, that all things work together for good. I just want to give God glory here in my own life. To anybody listening, think about that. The recipient of this good is one, someone who loves God. And you could not love God if he did not give you a new heart, did not first love you. And it's also someone who's been effectually called by God. And that only comes from him. So the fact that all things work together for your good is only because of God loving you and saving you. He has so much glory to be received in this verse. So that just is something that humbles me. And that is a call to worship. Now we'll enter into discussing what good does not refer to in Romans 8.28. The word good in Romans 8.28 is not subject to man's detached from God desires. It's not a word that man can employ to manipulate circumstances. 
And what I'm really getting at is that temptation to quote this verse or have it quoted to you, maybe out of context, as if you are the one that defines what good is. And then we hold God accountable to giving us this good that we have defined. And when he doesn't do it, we get upset, frustrated, our faith uh, weakens, and God seems unloving. But that's the danger of looking at this out of its context, because the word good here is not a man-made idea of good. It's not. And we have an idea that uh, in our mind of you know certain situations, whether it's your day, your week, uh, whether it's your ministry, whether it's your job, your job situation, your academic situation, there's things that we want to work out a certain way, but that might not be the way that God wants things to work out. I'm, I'm reminded of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. A man plans his way in his heart, but the word establishes his steps. So we have our own plans. We have our own idea of what's good, but God knows what is best. And so the word good here in Romans 8, 28 is not necessarily a man-made idea of what we think good is, but rather it's the best possible course in the life of a believer from the perspective of your all-knowing God. And that leads us into discuss what good refers to in Romans 8.28. So this is the positive. I wanted to borrow here from Matthew Henry's commentary on Romans 8.28. And what Matthew Henry writes, he says, That is good for the saints, which does their souls good. Every providence tends to the spiritual good of those that love God. And breaking them off from sin, bringing them near to God, weaning them from the world, and fitting them for heaven. What an idea that is, fitting them for heaven. And, and really, what is that? That's our sanctification. So he's saying anything that would fit us for heaven, anything that would detach us from sin, is our good. And so that's my appeal, is as we look at what good refers to in Romans 8.28, this word does have a finite meaning, and it's defined by God, who through the Holy Spirit and the authorial intent of the Apostle Paul, and the authorial intent of the Apostle Paul, has a definition that we ought to abide by, especially if we're going to look to this verse for hope, and we're going to offer this verse to others for hope. In the context here, if you look back into the latter teens of Romans chapter 8, it's uh, verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you look down in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then this goes on, but you have this idea of suffering and weakness. And then the promise that God works all things, even those sufferings and even that weakness, for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Paul's teaching these Romans that those sufferings, afflictions, and perplexities of their life, the very things that do not seem good, are working, and this is where verse 29 comes in, to conform them to become more and more Christ-like. And of course, we know that that is very, very good. I'm going to read our verses really quickly so you can see here. I'll try to put some emphasis on the reality that what Paul is teaching is the thing that's good and that's promised to us in verse 28 is being conformed to the image of Christ, which is in verse 29. It reads like this, 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We see that a promise here is that those sufferings, those afflictions, all things will be worked out. They will work together for good. And that very good thing is to be conformed to the image of his son. And that's what Matthew Henry means by fitting us for heaven. So hopefully you've seen a little bit what good does not refer to. It's not subjective to man's made definition of good, but what it is, is conformity to Christ. So God will work the marital situation. He will work the anxiety, fear, worry, depression that overcome you. He will work the sin of Adam, the sin of others, and your own sin out for your good, which is the conformity of Christ. And so I want to move into application with that outline there. We'll look at Adam's sin, we'll look at the sin of others, and we'll look at our own sin. I want to start that by quoting John Calvin on his commentary in Romans, specifically verse 29. Calvin writes, quote, For no one can be an heir of heaven without being conformed to the image of the only begotten Son of God. How true is that? And the Apostle John testifies to that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, when he says that when we see him, quote, we shall be like him. We will be like him when we see him. We hold to the Reformed view of sanctification, of progressive sanctification, of past, present, future, or you may say positional, progressive, and perfect. One day we will be glorified. And until that day comes, we are progressively being conformed to the image of the only begotten Son of God. And Calvin is convinced that no one can be an heir of heaven without being conformed to the image of that Son. And that complements Henry well. We're being fit for heaven through trial, through circumstance, through suffering, and even through the good things. And one of the things, though, that I see is Romans 8.28 teaches us very clearly in the context of what Paul's saying to the Roman church there, is that the difficult things in life are not detached from God's loving kindness and His commitment to our sanctification. So launching into this outline, we'll check out Adam's sin. As I had already mentioned in the later teens of Romans chapter 8, we see that creation itself is not presently how it will be one day. All the elements of creation the Creator deemed as good, they now suffer the consequence of Adam's sin in Eden. Specifically, the things in my mind are disease and disaster. They find their roots in the fall. And we here inhabit such a place and are subject to the consequences of that fall. Specifically, we experience diseases and we suffer from disaster. And again, our sovereign God is not the big guy on the couch in the sky who is aloof to his people. He's not absent during our affliction. He uses our affliction to conform him to the image of his Son. We see this when Paul testifies in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-10. through 10. And I'm going to talk my way here, stall a little so I can turn it to it in my Bible. But what we see Paul doing is crying out. He, it's not Paul's will. He, when, he, when Paul defines good, it would be that he would not have this thorn in the flesh. But he sees the faithfulness of God, and he sees the purpose of God to use the thorn in the flesh to conform him to the image of his Son. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-10. through 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So we see this ailment given to Paul, and he was given it, and he prayed that the Lord remove it. And for Paul, that would be what he defines good as. But what God defined good as, what God used to conform him to the image of his son was not to remove that. And Paul, thankfully, realized that. And he realized that when he's weak, God is made strong, and he learned about God's grace through that. And it's true, different people have different opinions on what they think that Paul is talking about here, but in terms of what the thorn in the flesh was, but there's one place where we see in Scripture, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, we see a man who is blind, and we don't have to debate what his ailment is. We know the the text explicitly says that, and this beggar is crying out. He cries, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he's chided. He's told to be quiet. But his hope was not found in people. And he certainly was unwilling to be quieted by those people. He cried out louder. And the blind beggar received his sight. So here is a really great example of God using really a a physical ailment to bring people to conform to the image of his son. The blind beggar received his sight immediately. What Luke chapter 18 verse 43 says, he went around glorifying God. So you go from being blind to crying out to Jesus to being healed to glorifying God. So we see with Paul, his request was not answered. Yet he still was conformed to the image of the son of God. And we see the blind beggar in Luke 18, he was healed, and his prayer was answered, and what he thought was good did align with what God thought was good, and in both cases, the person was conformed to the image of the Son of God. And so I hope that you find great application that yes, it's very true, because of the sin of Adam, we exist in a world that is not what it was created to be, and one that is not presently as it will be. However, God uses that. He uses the disasters and the diseases of this world to conform us to the image of His Son. So I encourage you, if you're dealing with something like this and you've made your petition to the Lord, whether He works it out according to the way that you think is good and best or His own, He will use it to conform you, to sanctify you, to make you more like Christ, or as Matthew Henry says, to fit you for heaven. With that, we'll move on to other sin, and I, I wanted to highlight Psalm 55. Wow, when we when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, you know, you think about people who are hurting, people who have been betrayed, people who have been uh, deeply wounded. We're talking about people who are victims in in the sense of the term. Crimes have been committed against them, and you see Psalm 55. And this is where the sufficiency of Scripture comes in. This is the Scripture is sufficient. It is applicable. And it helps someone who has been hurt like this. The psalmist reveals the anguish and terror within their heart in Psalm 55 verse 4. Eventually, the psalmist goes on to reveal some specific information about their present trouble, stating, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. 
nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion and my familiar friend. I'll tell you what, the first time I came about this across this verse was in a book by Dr. Heath Lambert. I actually can stare at that book across from myself on my shelf right now. It's called A Theology of Biblical Counseling. And he's discussing how he counseled a young lady who was a victim of sexual abuse. And it was from an uncle, someone very close, someone that she should be able to trust. And it was God, through the just beautiful love of the Holy Spirit, comforted her with Psalm 55 that says, It is you, a man of my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. The young lady that Heath was counseling was sinned against by an uncle, someone she should be able to trust, a companion, a familiar friend. And Psalm 55 particularly ministered to this person. And the psalmist within Psalm 55 is hurting because of the sin of another. And in this life, we sin and we are sinned against often. So does God use these events for our good? According to Romans 8.28, He does. And we would look back to that case I just mentioned in uh, that Heath Lambert wrote about. How does God use that for good? Does God will the sin of that uncle? Does God will your most grievous sin, the sins that you don't want anybody else to know about, or the flip side of that, those most grievous sins against you, the worst you've ever been sinned against, the thing that's hurt you the deepest. Did God will that? No. But God also uses that. And that is such a beautiful thing that we see over and over and over and over again in the Scripture. The Lord does not will sin, but He does not waste sin. He uses it. And How did he do that in Psalm 55 for the psalmist who was hurt by such a close companion? Well, he conformed him to the image of the Son by deepening his trust in God. Psalm 55 says this in verses 16 and 18, quote, As for me, I shall call upon God and the Lord will save me. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. And we see in Psalm 55, although David was hurt by a close companion, God used that to pull David closer to himself, to teach him more about himself, to conform him to the image of his son by trusting in God the Father. And I hope that 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 is comforting for you as you contemplate how you cope in a world where people sin against you from, you know, whether it be work or family, the ones close to you, the ones far from you. God uses that in one very basic way is to drive us to Him as our refuge, as our comforter, as our help. He also shows us how desperately wicked the world is and how much we need Christ. And so the Lord uses that despite the fact that He doesn't will it. It's it's not God's desire that we would violate His moral will or that others would. But when they do, He will use that to conform you to the image of His Son. And so we will land our plane here just discussing about how is Romans 8.28, the word good, how is that applicable when we are the ones who have sinned? Again, I'll borrow from Matthew Henry on this. He goes on from where I left off on his commentary in Romans 8.28, and he says, When the saints act out of character, corrections will be employed to bring them back again. So when the Christian acts out of character, the Lord is so faithful. Corrections will be employed to bring them back again. You can read about that 
in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 3, with the loving discipline of your heavenly Father. Recently, I observed a biblical counseling session between a counselor named Amy Baker and another woman who went by the name of the video named Annie. Now, this was a counseling training video. I was watching it via the internet, so I'm not sure if her name was really Annie or not, but Annie recalled a recent trip to the treadmill at the local gym, and there she spotted several women who, in her opinion, looked prettier than her, had better skin, were in better shape, and so on. And Annie felt angry at God for not being as beautiful as the other women. And especially, Annie said, hey, I'm a Christian, and they're not. You know, clearly, Annie's got some heart issues going on. She is jealous. She's not content. She's got envy going on. She is angry at God, and, and it's never, it's never just to be angry at God, in case you were wondering. When someone tells you they're angry at God, th- it's time to repent, because God knows what is best for us, and He's working what is best for us out. So it's never just to be angry at God, because God never sins. And so Annie was expressing that type of anger from God. And so from one perspective, she could ask, how seeing all these women around me a good occurrence? And Amy Baker so lovingly and so wisely pointed out to her that God is using those responses to seeing those other women as an opportunity to expose Annie's heart to herself. Things in Mark chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, that we see that sin comes from the heart of man. And Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5, that says, man's heart, the contents of our heart, they are like water in a deep well. And it does take a person of understanding to draw them out. And in watching that session, I saw Amy, Amy Baker pull out the contents of Annie's heart, or at least make her aware that that's what God was doing. And so Annie's asking, how is seeing all these women and making me feel insecure and question God? How is that in accordance with Romans 8, 28? She's saying, and Amy's saying, hey, Annie, God is showing you that you need to put off jealousy. You need to value external beauty less, and you need to put on contentment in the Lord. And all these things, if Annie did them, would conform her to the image of the Son. And so this is just one example of how God, who does not will our sin, but still uses it for our good, can work that out in our life. And I wanted to share one more example in the life of Peter. So this ruffian fisherman, Peter, I was recently reading a small devotional. It's called 40 Lives in 40 Days, and it's by John MacArthur. And it kind of is based off of his two books, 12 Ordinary Men and 12 Extraordinary Women. I know that 12 Ordinary Men was a 2002 book, but and those chapters are longer, but the very first person is Simon Peter. So I was sitting down for breakfast yesterday, praise God for that day off work, and just picked up this little devotional. It's only about five pages, but he really details the life of Peter and how unlikely of a candidate for leadership he was. But what John MacArthur discusses are the, the lessons, the difficult lessons, the hard lessons, and the unwise decisions of Peter. Throughout this very small chapter, he just says that basically you have Peter here who, and I think if you look in the book 12 Ordinary Men, um, which actually I have it here, I'm going to look at the subtitle. The, the first or second chapter is about Peter. Uh, yes, I do. And it's on page 29. It's chapter 2, and it says, Peter, the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. And so looking at this 40 lives and 40 days devotional, he's talking about the life experiences of Peter. And one of the things is, yes, he always puts his foot in his mouth, but he also does some very, makes some very hasty decisions and performs some really un- ungodly actions. 
And John MacArthur reflects on the life of Peter and asks, quote, What was this all about? People with natural leadership abilities often tend to be short on compassion, lousy comforters, and impatient with others. They don't stop very long to care for the wounded as they pursue their goals. Simon Peter needed to learn compassion through his own ordeal so that when it was over, he could strengthen his brothers and sisters in theirs. Jesus took the rough fisherman Simon Peter, full of inquisitiveness, initiative, and a need to be personally involved, and cultivated within him a spirit of submission, restraint, humility, and love, all to make him live up to his nickname, Peter the Rock. So that's an example. Annie was on the treadmill, and God used that to conform her to the image of his son. Peter denied the Messiah, and God used that to conform him to the image of his son, When Jesus comes to him and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? What great compassion he is teaching Peter. He is conforming him to the image of his son. And I hope that you can see that in your life, that I can speak of it experientially. Some of the just most foolish things I've ever done, some of the deepest hurts I've ever inflicted on other people or myself, God did not will that. And Jesus endured the wrath on the cross and was beaten literally to death because of that hideous sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, who is a strong tower, who atones, who makes atonement for our sin, comforts us. And he teaches us, A, not to do, not to commit that sin again, and he grants us the gift of repentance that we wouldn't. But B, he gives us compassion for other people when they sin against us or when they sin, period, that we would have a hunger to expose them to such mercy and comfort and forgiveness and renewal that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that, I want to leave you with a very encouraging, very encouraging verse here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and I'll share this with you that the Lord used these verses to call me to biblical counseling. If you are there and you need to know that God is working whatever you are going through for your good, if you need to know and be reminded and you've never thought that that word good in Romans 8.28 means to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, well, here is a little bit of purpose that comes from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So the Lord will comfort you in your affliction. And sometimes you're going through that affliction in part to sanctify you and conform you to the image of the Son, but also so that one day you can look someone else who is hurting in the eye and wrap your arm around them and say, I know what you're going through and I know who can help and heal you. And that would be our loving God the Father. With that, I hope that you have enjoyed this. I hope that you've gleaned something from it. I hope that if nothing else, the next time you're reading through Romans chapter 8 and you see that word good, you know that God is actively working to conform you to the image of His Son, that you would be fit for heaven. 
If you're interested in more content, please visit us at reformconfess.com. God bless you.